Hello, everyone. Welcome to Music Industry 360 podcast by Symphonic Distribution. My name is Randall Foster. I am a Chief Creative Officer at Symphonic. And joining me today to discuss all things sync is Mr. John Mizrahi, who is head of sync at Bodega Sync. Um, John, do you want to tell us a little bit about Bodega and what it is that you all do? Sure. Uh, Bodega Sync was launched in 2019. It's a fully owned part of uh, Symphonic Distribution, and um, we're the sync licensing arm. So we license um, a roster of independent artists, producers, record labels um, for um, film, TV, advertising, promos, trailers, video games, pretty much anything with a video component. Awesome. And you've been at the sync game for, for quite some time now. You 15, you give us, 15 years. Yeah. You want to give us a little history there so we know what we're dealing with? Sure. Um, I've been doing this for 15 years. Uh, I previously worked uh, for Carlin American Music Publishing, which is um, a family-owned uh, music publishing company here in New York with incredible evergreen catalog um, of copyrights, including um, James Brown, Meatloaf, Billy Holiday, Bobby Darin, uh, the whole ACDC catalog. Um, and then my former boss uh, also ran a management and sync licensing company with a focus on one-stop licensing, which is kind of where um, I cut my teeth, you know, signing and licensing um, independent artists, which is kind of what uh, what I'm doing with Symphonic. So, you know, obviously we, we represent lots of independent artists with a focus on making sure that their music is as uncomplicated to license as possible. Awesome. For the crowd here, do you want to explain a little bit what you mean by one-stop? Sure, absolutely. Um, one stop is kind of like an insider uh, sync term, but it's meant to mean that uh, licensing can all be done through um, through one party. So typically um, for any given song, you have the songwriters, and in some cases, if they have a publishing deal, a publisher representing the songwriters or multiple publishers representing multiple songwriters, and then you have a recording that either belongs to the artist or a record label. And it could get pretty complicated pretty fast when there are lots of collaborators, lots of co-writers, things like that. So even for a complicated situation, a company like Bodega Sync uh, can help uh, aggregate all the rights and make it so that we essentially represent everybody. And so that from the perspective of the person trying to license the song, they send us a licensing request, we negotiate, we do the paperwork and we license it without having to uh, go to all these individual parties and all come to agreement on a number and do the same paperwork with 10 different people. So just to be clear, it, does it, does everything Bodega represent have to be one stop or or is there exceptions and things made from time to time just for the for the crowd? There are exceptions, but they're rare. Um, essentially, you know, I would say at least 80% of our catalog is cleared as one stop and it's kind of the thing that we're known for. Um, if we're representing something not as a one stop, it's typically like a higher profile artist, uh, in some cases, somebody who has a, a pre-existing publishing deal with a major, things like that. And then we work hand in hand with them um, on licensing requests. And, um, you know, in some cases, if necessary, make sure that we're all on the same page so that things go smoothly. So it's still easy, but, you know, there's just more people involved. Very cool. Very cool. So obviously you've been in the sync licensing game for a while. Mm -hmm. I know things have changed. I know that, you know, the, the landscape has changed. The, the outlets that are using content have, have changed. Um, what do you think have been some of the most seismic changes over the last couple of years that you've witnessed? So sync licensing definitely changes, but a lot of it sort of stays the same. Um, I think that there's a certain amount of, um, there's a certain amount of, of fixed nature of the type of music um, that tends to gravitate towards being useful in media. And that stayed pretty constant. I think the things that have kind of changed trend-wise, um, I'm seeing a lot more um, focus on the artists over the song. Um, so the song is still very important. The budget, the rights are all still quite important. Um, but more and more, I'm starting to see um, 
you know, people who are telling stories that are set in a specific city or location or with an artist with a certain like ethic background. And they want artists that help reflect and to bring authenticity to that story. Um, and that's that's been kind of a newish thing. Um, I think that uh, in the past few years, uh, having instrumental mixes, um, which is something that had always been important, but never really mandatory, has become kind of mandatory. Um, the reason being that if you don't have your instrumental mixes, they can't really make edits uh, throughout dialogue so that they can kind of bring the vocals in and out, so to speak, by creating a, a comp edit. Um, and I've also seen uh, those instrumental mixes become really valuable um, in advertising where um, ad agencies really love using real artist material with the vocals taken out over existing uh, just standalone instrumentals. I think mainly because they're sort of constructed and written in a way where, you know, they have a carve out for where the vocals are, are. And when you take them out, it leaves a lot of space for voiceover and for dialogue and things like that. Um, beyond that, there's, there's obviously uh, a lot of people trying to use new technologies, uh, you know, to, to expand sync licensing into the metaverse and to use blockchain to um, solve some really complicated, pervasive problems in sync licensing, specifically, you know, tracking who controls all the rights uh, to music, which on the publishing side, as you well know, can be very complicated and rights change hands pretty frequently and trying to make it so that there's sort of a centralized place where you can at least find out who has all the rights uh, to a particular song is exceedingly complicated. And there's some very smart people who've been trying to work on um, creating technology-based solutions for that. Um, I'm seeing international sync. Uh, I mean, sync has always existed around the world, but now, um, especially throughout the pandemic, uh, people have been more inclined to work remotely with people in different areas, you know, throughout the country, but also throughout the world. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of companies are making it really easy to, to partner together so that they can, you know, rather than, you know, setting up offices around the world to uh, to represent stuff, you can sort of work with other people. Um, there are lots of platforms that are coming online in recent years um, to make licensing very easy for sort of um, uh, content creators who don't have huge budgets. So if you're making, you know, like a small, like a local advertisement or you're doing a podcast and you want really cool music, there are a lot of people who are uh, coming up with, you know, solutions to make that process really streamlined and uncomplicated because it does require um, a lot of understanding of a very complicated business and a lot of paperwork and a lot of, you know, sort of pre-preparation for that sort of thing. So those are, those are a lot of the new things that I'm starting to see. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a great deal of change. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So let's dial back and back up a little bit and start talking about the music itself mm -hmm. rather than the space at large. I'm an independent artist. I'm making music. What are some tips and tricks that I can employ to make sure that I have a greater chance of succeeding in sync, whether it be with Bodega or independently or, or uh, however? Um, I think a lot of artists are reluctant to categorize themselves and everyone thinks that they're a unique flower and nobody wants to admit that their music sounds like someone else's music. But in the landscape of the amount of music that exists in the world right now, that's usually the easiest way for people to quickly understand what it is you do. So, you know, if you make music that sounds you know, like Silk Sonic, that's like kind of throwback 70s stuff. And you're embarrassed that your music kind of sounds like this famous artist or whatever. Um, and you try to explain that like, oh, it, you know, it pulls on like, you know, classic soul, like classic soul is pretty broad, but like, you know, so it's kind of like Silk Sonic. People are like, oh, okay, I understand what that is. Finding that niche, understanding what your music is about, understanding how to quickly communicate that to people. Um, and 
if you are going to directly reach out to music supervisors, which may or may not work um, without a relationship, you know, you want to bring them something that they need. And so understanding what they need um, and specifically just doing your homework. You know, if you're, for instance, if you are an artist uh, that makes music like Silk Sonic um, and there's a TV show that uses stuff like that and you look on IMDb and you find out who the supervisor is and you tweet at them and say, hey, I'm an artist that does this and it's right on point and it shows immediately that you know um, you know what kind of music they use in the production and you are a person that makes that kind of music. And so now the supervisor is like, oh, maybe I should talk to you because you are the right person. If you you know are a techno artist and you pitch your music for a show that uses all indie rock, it immediately shows you have no idea what you're talking about and you're just gonna be shut out. Um, beyond that, I would also recommend now that you know what the term one stop means, it's always really good if you do control all your rights. Um, if you're in a band and all of you collectively own uh, the publishing the master, or if you're a solo artist and you make all your stuff on a laptop, um, use the word one stop because that also will communicate to a music supervisor that they know what they're doing. Um, but realistically, directly reaching out to supervisors and to ad agencies and things like that, um, they ignore most people. Um, and so the reason that a, a sync rep or an agency exists is that we're trusted partners and we cultivate relationships with them and we spend a lot of time um, ourselves digging into what they do. They send us briefs uh, looking for specifically what they're looking for. So they solicit us for music in a way that they wouldn't ever do for an artist. Um, and it's our job to essentially curate stuff for that. So that's usually the channel in which um, you'll be able to, to, um, to get your music uh, into media. Now, in terms of finding a sync rep, um, I'd love to tell you that Bodega Sync is the perfect partner for everybody, but we're not. And there are lots of different companies that focus and specialize in certain things. And everybody has their roster and everybody has holes in their roster. So for us, um, for instance, we have tons and tons of hip hop artists. We do a lot of business in the hip hop space. We're always open to it, but we have a lot of artists to begin with. There may be another comparable company that has fewer of them who might be more excited about signing any hip hop artists just because they don't, um, they don't have much on the roster. So understanding what a sync rep specializes in, looking at where their past placements were, looking at what their roster looks like, will give you an idea as to whether or not you're a good fit for them. Um, for us also, we focus on one-stop rights. That's not necessarily everybody. You know, so just understanding who your audience is, I think is a really smart thing, whether you're going directly to a supervisor or you're going to a sync agency. Awesome. So <clears throat> I, I'm curious, I think I know your answer on this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, you know, in Nashville, <laughs> in the music publishing space where I was at before, before I was here, often someone would bring a song to me and they would say, this is a really interesting song, but we don't know where it could go. So maybe you can pitch it for sync. You know, and I, I had varying levels of success myself with, with those songs. Um, and I, I always dialed back my own thought processes with regards to why things didn't work um, as the authenticity of the music of the art wasn't locked in. And I know a lot of artists talk about writing sync songs and, and mm -hmm. doing sync projects, but I, I'm curious your thoughts. How important is authenticity in the art? Um, you know, there are a lot of really talented musicians who can write in all genres and all styles. Um, but, you know, where do you think that line between sheer talent and authenticity resides? 
That's a really great question. I mean, there is definitely a space for sync artists and there are sync artists that do incredibly well, but I think that it's becoming more and more difficult for them to find um, a space because I think that there's there are very few artists that can do that kind of thing and still come off as authentic. So if you write in 10 different genres, you might be able, you might be good enough that you can authentically do all of that. Even if you don't necessarily come from those scenes or whatever, um, there are just some people who are just brilliant. And, you know, you can say to them, like, having never written a country song, like, write me a country song. And they do a little bit of listening to some country music and they just absorb what the essence of what it is. And they write a brilliant country song. Those people are few and far between. Most people, you know, they realistically just know one thing really well. They have a lane or whatever. Um, and, and I think that also coming from um, a place in a background where you are authentic is more uh, is more likely to to help you resonate with something and sing. So I think that there's a space for those for those those types of artists. I think there's a lot of people who say that they can write sync write for sync, and they can't. In the same way that like there's a lot of people, you know, I mean anybody can go hang out with any group of people. Whether or not you're going to fit in comes down to what kind of personality you have. So in this case with the the songwriting. Um, you know, if you are going to step out into a space that you're not familiar with, you better be a damn good songwriter. Um, and the songs themselves better have enough weight to transcend the fact that maybe you're not like authentically, um, you know, the, the, an artist from the genre that you're sort of uh, writing in. Um, I mean, another thing is if you write a brilliant song um, and it's outside the genre, maybe finding a, a performer you know, to, to record your song is really the right way to do it. So if you write a brilliant country song, but you're a shitty, you know, country artist, you know, you're not a good singer, you might want to find somebody who's not a great songwriter and partner up with them and say, listen, I need a vessel for this song. And you have the authenticity and the good songwriting, which is how, how music used to be made back in the day. I mean, you used to have professional songwriters writing songs for professional artists and recording artists. And now, uh, you know, since the Beatles, everybody's just trying to do everything themselves. Some people do that really brilliantly and it's amazing. And other people are better at one thing or another. And, you know, their weaknesses, you know, detract from the overall, you know, appeal of their music. Does does releasing your music commercially affect the curb appeal of your authenticity? Um, it gives people context and maybe a metric to evaluate whether or not you're a real artist. You know, we represent um, some producers who make music that is focused on sync, but they do it exceptionally well. And they uh, they write stuff that we just don't have otherwise. And so my preference would be to have authentic artists who do all that kind of stuff. But nobody's come to me with, the, you know, with music quite as good as what they make. Um, and I recommended to them that they uh, create artist personas around it and to release the stuff through Spotify so that it's there, so that it looks like real artists. And, and it gives us um, the ability to say, this is not a huge artist, but this is like an under the radar real artist, as opposed to saying, you know, this is like, you know, bodega production music or whatever you want to call it. That's sort of this generic -y kind of thing. I think releasing the music is not a requirement. If you're an artist and you have like following um, and you have a listenership, releasing the music will definitely elevate, you know, the profile of it. It may add value to the song itself, but um, depending on what kind of music, it may also date it. Uh, so, you know, you also have a situation where, you know, you may have a record that sounds perfectly 2022, but it was released in 2017 and a supervisor might see that and be like, that's an old record. And that may detract from whether or not they want to use it. Every supervisor and, and every production has their own sort of criteria. Some people don't care about that. Some people only want brand new music. We get briefs sometimes saying only send us stuff that isn't out yet. That's going to be that you have a release planned for six months from now so that we know that it's going to be really fresh and really new. Um, so there's there's not any one answer to that. There are benefits to releasing it. There are benefits to not releasing it because it becomes ageless. 
And, uh, you know, then as long as you're able to tie it to an artist, you can say, well, this is like a, like an unreleased or pre-release track. And then it gives the music supervisor like, okay, well, this is going to be something that's going to be out. And if we can place it correctly, it'll be coming out when the show like airs and the marketing from both of them can sort of, you know, elevate each other. Um, so that could be an attractive thing. We, we represent a lot of unreleased music and I kind of prefer it to be honest. Really? Well, it seems like there's a, there could be a lot of strategy where the sync could actually help the music perform digitally, et cetera. And being part of a distributor is a really great place to be when you're <laughs> talking about representing, you know, unreleased stuff. We can very quickly put a release plan together um, get marketing together. I mean, if it's something that we really, it's a huge placement, it's going to be an ad on TV or something like that, you know, that's a huge marketing driver. Um, and so, you know, getting things up on DSPs and, and putting a strategy together is something obviously that we specialize in. So Awesome. Let's talk about um, a little bit more with regards to the global picture of sync. Um, from my former days in sync, I remember there were bands that kind of had a season. You know, like the Black Keys for a while were everything. Every every time I heard of a need musically, it was, you know, something like the Black Keys and Mumford and Sons had their season and Imagine Dragons and then Kanye West's Black Skinhead. And are you seeing stylistically any trends right now that it might be not that, you know, obviously artists in the crowd, if you change your genre and your style completely to chase this trend, you're already late. Um, but yeah, for those who, yeah. for those who might already be in the genre that might already have something that lines up like that, is there something you're seeing a pattern with musically with regards to requests lately? Less and less, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I, I wish I could say that we didn't get references that you could trace back to Black Keys, meaning like riffy swagger rock uh that has been a fixture in sync for over a decade and it's still a thing um they don't necessarily just reference black keys i think probably because it's become like such a tired reference at this point um but i mean that, that you know there is something inherent in that that is kind of timeless which is like attitude um and confidence and that is that crosses and transcends genres um, I've seen a lot more focus on like hip hop and R&B, uh, which are hugely diverse genres in and of itself. I mean, hip hop, R&B and electronic music, you know, are really om almost like useless labels at this point because there's such a range stylistically of what they could be. But I think that, you know, they're, they're really important for the, the sound that a lot of productions are, are kind of, you know, seeking right now. I think less about, and it's difficult. You and I both come from a publishing background you know, focus on songs. I think that uh, people give too much attention to uh, genre and like who someone sounds like and, and those types of trends. And they'll think enough about what their songs are about. Um, there are a lot of absolutely brilliant artists, some that we represent who write songs and I can't figure what they're about. Um, I read the lyrics and I'm like, I, these are just words. They're interesting, nice sounding words. They work really well in music, but they don't say anything. Um, and I think that people have strayed away from writing those types of songs. And I think that the people who write those kinds of songs that don't necessarily tell a story, but can be used in a way to help support a story. So um, I always tell people in terms of songwriting that the things that work across all media, you know, you, you have to understand that a production, no matter if it's a commercial or a film or a TV show, uh, or even a video game, anything, they are telling a story through the, the visual media and they want the music to create a vibe, but they also want the words to make some sense. And they don't want it to be literal. They don't want it to be, you know, a story, you know, where like 
you know, it's a war scene and the, the lyrics are like, you know, it's so hard to be in war. Like it's too on the nose. They want, <laughs> you know, they want a song that talks about the feelings uh, like, and the song could not be about war. The song could be about, you know, heartbreak after a breakup. But as long as it doesn't mention the breakup and it's focused on the emotion, those are the same emotions of loss of whatever it is. Um, so I think that making sure that your songs connect to universal human emotions and feelings and, and, and themes is really important. And it's something that I feel like a lot of, a lot of uh, artists don't pay enough attention to. The trends, like you said, you know, you can't chase the trends. Even with us with signing artists, we're, we're pretty nimble, you know, in terms of being able to say like, like, oh, um, you know, uh, we're noticing that like Zydeco music is having a moment. You know, we can go grab a bunch of Zydeco artists and by the time we have our deals in place, that moment I is over. I am so ready for Zydeco <laughs> to have a moment. The, uh, Me too, it'd be great. The, you know, you make a really great point though. And, I, and I've, for years, have coached songwriters on how to do what they do better for sync. Um, and, and I feel like I've been a broken record, but I've always stood by the fact that human emotion is a universal thing. And it doesn't yep. matter what, what salary you make, what continent you live on. Happiness is happiness. Sadness is sadness. I, I, I refer to them personally as big tent concepts, big tent emotions. Um, and I, I used to always use um, Pharrell's happy as a, as kind of a, like happy is like a, it's a nothing song. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a song word, about an emotion. It's a word salad about about just being happy yeah and um nobody but, writes this <laughs> but my god it worked and, and it yeah. works it worked in that film and it worked in gazillions of other places and it you know it's now gosh probably 10 times platinum yeah. um but it and really from a film it really was it, it, it really is an interesting song because if you listen to the lyric structure um it doesn't read like a book it doesn't make sense yeah. Um, you know, they never tell you why you're happy. Yeah, which which maybe maybe people don't need that explanation on their on their emotion. Totally. I mean, um, but it always it's interesting to hear you say that though with regards to to music at large and in in kind of pulling back into those kind of those pillars of emotion versus versus you know yo right now Billie Eilish is really having a moment you know more more emotional pop female vocal stuff would be really great. You know, I'm a huge Billie Eilish fan and her songs are incredibly well constructed and they have that same thing. You know, from what I understand, she grew up in a household where uh, she's like homeschooled and her parents taught them, her and her brother songwriting. Like they, they like literally like had structured songwriting classes. So it's not accidental. She's not just like some accidental genius. She was raised from a young age to like think about song structure and things like this. Um, I think that that education is hard to come by. There's, you know, there, I, I know that you're an educator in this field as well, but like, there's just not that many spaces for artists to practically learn songwriting as a craft. And so I think that they copy people that they admire, which is fine, but they maybe sometimes lose the, uh, the underlying craft of how to write a song that really resonates with people. And they're really focused on trying to like create a vibe with their music, which has its place also. There's nothing wrong with that. But like you said, you know, if you're, if your lyrics are word salad, it's going to be really hard to sing um, unless it's meant to just be really super background. Yeah. Um, if you want something that's going to really carry 
um, and, and help accentuate a storyline, you want it to have some sort of a, like a, a universal theme. Like you said about happy is interesting because song happy never tells you what anyone's happy about. And so it could be about anything. You could be happy about winning the lottery. You could be happy about buying a new car. You could be happy about falling in love. You can be happy with like, insert anything that you're happy about and that song can be about it. And I, that's a great way to write a song. I think artistically, I think, I think more artists should ask themselves why. Why, why, why did I, why did I write this song? What, what, what am I getting at with it? And that's, that's a hard, that's a hard artistic question to ask. It really, it really what is. Will this, what will this song mean to anyone else? Yeah, it, it really is a tough question to ask. I think you and I could riff on this for probably another two hours. Sure. Um, we're, we're getting, we're kind of running out of time and there are a couple items I do want to cover with you because I do think as we talked about the seismic change kind of in the sync space one of those I've witnessed even on the outside of it really has been um the the kind of decentralized formats that we're seeing now whereas a couple of years ago it was tv film ads video games that was really pretty much it non-traditional stuff but non-traditional was such a small slice of the pie it didn't really account for much but now we have new players in this space like TikTok and things like that that are actually being used in an advertising sense by brands. Um, can you give a, land, a quick landscape of that and kind of what that looks like and feels like to you? That and then in addition to that, you know, as a sidebar, the advent of the IPTV situation with, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu doing original productions. Has that really affected and changed the way you do things or or are there just more viable targets today than there were 10 years ago? There are more viable targets for sure. The targets are much more diverse, I think. Um, I think that the types of stories that you can, you know, it's kind of like uh, network TV and then you had cable and cable for many years was like they just played movies and then, you know, uh, HBO, Showtime, they, they started producing original content and that original content was weightier and more cinematic and higher production value and kind of more interesting and edgy than anything that was on television. And they could use curse words and they can have sex scenes and like all this kind of stuff. Um, and then streaming, I think is taking it like another another level. And I think that, you know, it's such a huge business and there's so much money in these subscription models that you have uh, dozens of companies producing um, really interesting content and they can do it they're they're not based on like a traditional television schedule um they're not thinking about like well how's this going to do at the box office and they could take bigger risks and they can you know they can bring in um stories that probably the traditional studio and network system would have never given a moment to because they're not money makers um but you put that content out on netflix and then you have like these sudden like viral you know series that just absolutely take off you know um there's, I mean, this is not like a music thing, but just as an example, um, there's like a new series hosted by Mikey Day called Is It Cake? And it's a game show about like cake makers who make things and like, is it cake? I have seen that. You probably would never get that on TV. Like, you know, you need, you know, someone to be like, that's weird, let's do it. Um, and I think that, you know, not just weird, but you know, you have like international um, filmmakers and, and, and series in other languages. I've watched so many things in the last, like during the pandemic, I was like watching shows French and Hebrew and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, in order to access these things, you have to really kind of delve into like foreign culture. And now it's just like, oh, it's just on Netflix, let's go like that. Um, and I think that all of those things, all of those productions um, offer the ability for people who make music that's outside the mainstream to find a voice, people who make music in foreign, in other languages. Like even though, you know, these productions are mostly 
originating from the United States. It's not all in English. It's not all about white people, you know, and it's not just like the same kind of stories that we've been seeing, you know, for such a long time. And it's giving voices to to a lot of um, a lot of different types of people. In terms of TikTok that, that you mentioned, you know, I was talking um, to somebody about this recently that uh, it's interesting that TikTok is just by definition similar to a commercial in and of itself, right? It's a short form media. You know, commercial is 15 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute. And you got to put as much stuff in there as you can. That's why you see these pharmaceutical ads and, you know, like may cause internal bleeding. You know, they're, they're talking really fast and they're trying to get lots of stuff in there and they're trying to make a story happen. It's like a mini film and they have to just compress all this stuff into this very small space. And TikTok is the same thing, but without the constraints of it having to sell product. Um, and so you have this format where people are being hugely creative in such a small format and it's done the same thing to songs, right? So for commercials, you would take a whole big song and you have an editor come in and chop it up and say, how do we make this into something that tells a story in a short period of time? And now you have not commercial editors, people who are just making funny videos or interesting, whatever. Um, and they're zoning in on these certain types of songs that is like, you know, this, this song goes, oh no, and, you know, and they're like, oh, that could be about anything. <laughs> like anytime something goes wrong, you say the, oh no song. Or like another song goes big. And every time there's a big thing, it's, you know, so it, it's, it's interesting how it's giving new context to these like short form edited songs. Um, and that's also driving like the music industry. Songs are taking off and becoming hit songs through, you know, through TikTok. Um, from a sync perspective, TikTok uh, is not, really a, a rich sync environment because nobody's really licensing any of that stuff unless it's specifically crafted as an advertisement and even then people are people are creating um advertising content with music but in in a lot of cases they may or may not be licensing it because there's a permissive sort of um ability for for music to be used you know in, in that context and sometimes in some cases they may be clearing it just to cover themselves but in a lot of cases the the TikTok rights are part of a larger um multi you know multimedia ad campaign um, so yeah, I mean, there, it's a target rich environment. There's a lot of opportunities for this. Um, I mean, the metaverse is probably next and people are very smart. People are having discussions and trying to figure out how licensing is going to work there. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting feature. I mean, the things have, have evolved quite a bit. And I think people are all still trying to figure a lot of this out. Um, but in the meantime, there is absolutely no shortage of opportunities for, uh, for music to be used in these contexts. And it's our job to, uh, to make sure the artists get paid for it. Awesome. Speaking of opportunities, I'd be remiss if I didn't let you do a little bit of a humble brag here on, on some of the things that you're really proud of that you've accomplished recently um, with, with Bodega. Are there, some, are there a deal or two that stick out in terms of, of, of that that you'd like to share? I don't know that there's any like one specific thing, but I will say that in the last year or so, um, we've gotten to the point where we're doing enough licensing and enough business and we're representing artists that, that music supervisors are kind of attracted to inherently and that we're not doing as much outreach and selling and we're, we're doing a lot more incoming kind of business, which is kind of the natural evolution of a business. You know, we've started doing business with music supervisors that were very, very difficult to impress early on. Um, there are people that I've known for a long time. Um, and even with my relationships with them, uh, whether or not they engage with us has everything to do with what we have for them. Um, so when we started out, we had like 10 to 15 artists that nobody had ever heard of. Um, it's a tough sell to be like, hey, let's have a conversation about what I could put in your show. And now, you know, with the with about 10,000 plus tracks, most of which are really easy to license, um, and really, really high quality music. 
Um, I mean, again, in terms of our, our curation, we're obsessively picky, um, even from Symphonic, you know, with a huge amount of releases available to us, we represent like less than 1% of their overall, um, you know, releases. And it's allowed us to curate a really strong um, roster and to have specialization in certain genres. And probably the most thing I'm proud of, you know, recently, we had a huge run um, of licenses in um, All-American and the new spinoff All-American Homecoming, which is a huge hit show. It's music supervised by Madonna Wade Reed, somebody I've known for a long time. And I worked very hard to impress her <laughs> with our music um, and pitched her, you know, pretty much from the start at Bodega. And things really just connected um, this year. And she gave us like 10 or so licenses and, and she supervised lots of shows. Um, and these were all like really big placements for us. And it's just a huge, to me, it's a huge accomplishment because it's, you know, it's as soon as you open the door with someone like her who um, doesn't just supervise one show, she's doing a lot of stuff. She's very influential. You know, she's the second in command of the Guild of Music Supervisors, like a huge organization. We've started to see a lot of music supervisors who weren't that interested in working with us on day one. And now where we're at, they are seeking us out and they're coming after our music. And it's really exciting to see that. Great. Bravo with that. Thank you. We are about out of time here, but I wanted to, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today, John, and for um, illuminating the world of sync for our listeners. Um, if people want to know more, where should they go? bodegasync.com. That's bodega, B-O-D-E-G-A, sync, S-Y-N-C, with no H.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for participating today and for, for sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, to our listeners, stay tuned. There's going to be more episodes coming on more subject matter and with some great executive interviews here moving forward. Once again, I'm Randall Foster, Chief Creative Officer of Symphonic. And it's my absolute pleasure to have spent the last half hour with you. And I hope you'll join us again. <laughs> <laughs>